This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Radio. My name is Steve Martorano. We're here on Saturdays talking about the disease of addiction and the road to recovery. So we hope you have some time for us today. It's altogether appropriate that we do this uh, year-round, but certainly during the month of September, which has, for the past couple of decades anyway, been uh, designated as National Recovery Month. And that would seem like a strange uh, uh, topic to be bringing up in the in the uh, context of an epidemic of substance abuse that we're, that we're suffering through right now. But it's very important to do that because in the midst of all the very bad news, the very tragic news that we're all too familiar with regarding uh, the disease of addiction, there's a silver lining in this, and that is millions of millions of people managed to find their way to treatment and then long-term successful sobriety. So particularly during the, the September period of National Recovery Month, we want to remind people of that. And to that end, we bring folks in who have been down that path. They have battled with this disease, and they have, to, to the extent you can say this, uh, they have come out the other side uh, sober. And uh, that's what we're going to do again this week on Recovery Radio. I'll remind you that the whole thing is sponsored by Retreat, Premier Addiction Treatment Centers, and we'll have more about them straight ahead. Um, our, our guest in the studio, and we uh, we appreciate his time because uh, w- through a scheduling thing, we had to hustle up and, and, and get a hold of uh, uh, Yannick today. Uh, Yannick Harris joins us to talk about his uh, struggles with the disease of addiction and where he is now and the fact that he has uh, celebrated just recently his fourth year of sobriety. So we welcome Yannick Harris to the program. Yannick, thanks for joining us on Recovery Radio. Thank you for having me. Four years sober, huh? That's correct. That's, uh, you know, mad props. That's great. That is just just great. And you told me before we came on the air here that your anniversary date is when? July 4th, 2014. And I'm, what, the 2,000th person who said, whoa, Independence Day, huh? That's correct, <laughs> especially working in the field. Everyone tends to say that. Uh, and there's a story about how one gets sober on, you know, a day almost universally thought of as, you know, consumed with fireworks, celebration, and beer. Yeah, that's so. <laughs> correct. And I can tell you definitely was not my plan. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, uh, so we want to begin at the beginning and tell us about Yannick Harris. Where, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in eastern Pennsylvania. Um, for those of you that don't know, it's a small city um, right across the bridge from Phillipsburg, New Jersey. Um, I don't know if there's any sports fans out there, but um, it's the longest high school football rivalry, Easton and Peaburg. Yeah, I, I happen to know that because I have, a, on occasion, uh, managed to watch that game they showed on television in, in, in Pennsylvania. Anyway, you get to see that. How, how many years have they been playing each other? Ooh, um, I believe it's it's over 100. Over 100. It's, it's about 116, 115, somewhere in there. And these are towns divided by, what that what's it, the Susquehanna River? Uh, Delaware River. The, the Delaware River. Yes. And there, the, the, a bridge, it's, it's beautiful up there, been up there. And these two schools have been going at it That's for over a hundred years. So, what was your um, what was your family like life? Brothers, sisters, tell us um, about it. So, growing up in the household, uh, it was my mom, uh, my stepfather, who I always refer to as my as, as my father, um, my biological father. Um, he was. Um, he was a drug dealer, and uh, you know, in my life, 
he was he was there, showered me with gifts and everything, and then um, he got arrested. I believe I was like the age of six. So, um, and he is still in, in jail today um, as a result of some of the choices that he made. Um, but my household growing up, um, we lived in, in the projects, so like Section 8 housing. However, my, uh, my, my stepfather, he, he, he's a chemist. Um, he's not like a chemist that makes like bombs or anything like that. <laughs> um, but so, so we, we were well off, um, you know, even though we lived in a, a low class neighborhood, we, we definitely were, um, we had anything that we wanted. Um, also in the household was my, my older brother. He's three years older than me. And, uh, you could see at my house a lot, my cousin, um, he was the same age as my brother. Um, he didn't live there. He lived with our grandparents who just lived not too far away. But, um, being that his dad was in jail and, um, his mom was killed by his dad, um, we, and that we had a lot growing up. He, our parents really took care of him. Um, yeah. so he's like a brother as well. Yeah. Yeah, so so your circumstances were sort of uh, middle class. I mean, stable in terms of your stepfather being the anchor and your mom there, um, but a- around you w- w- it was some, was some pretty uh, pretty dark stuff, right? Were you, how aware were you? And you say you were six when your dad went away. How aware were you as you were growing up? Why he was in jail? And so, growing up, I well, I'll start with my mom. Um, so my mom, she. You know, I don't like to label anybody as an addict or an alcoholic. I think that's something that we all have to come to um, on our own terms. But my mom definitely did have substance struggles with substance abuse. And I'm a mama's boy, so um, I was always attached to her hip. I can remember times where we'd be sitting in the living room. Um, it'd be like 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, around after dinner, just watching TV. And all of a sudden, she'd be like, you hear that? And, you know, turn the TV down, and, you know, I didn't hear nothing. And then... Shortly later, before you know it, she was being hauled away in an ambulance. Um, so there were several, there were several episodes of that. Well, an overdose? She was overdosing? Um, not not overdosing, but just like, uh, I guess, uh, just the way she reacted to the substance that she was taking, almost like a paranoia. So she was having like a psychotic episode. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could remember that. Didn't know what it was from. Um, as far as my dad's concerned, I I remember when. So he it was a it was a huge case. Um, you know, he was arrested for running a continual criminal enterprise, um, like a total of like over 150 kilos. So it was a, it was a pretty big deal during that time of heroin of uh, cocaine cocaine at that time. So I do remember like vaguely um, like court. My mom talking about court. I do remember him seeing going down to see him um, at the federal penitentiary and in philadelphia well first he was in allentown we would visit him and then he got transferred to philadelphia i wasn't exactly sure though what it was for and why Mm -hmm. um well so given uh, so take us now through your introduction to uh uh, substances and then and then the abuse that followed did you begin like most young kids you started fooling around with the grass and beer or what well what i you know it's funny growing up i always heard that you know they say pot marijuana is the gateway drug. Um, I always thought that like alcohol was the is really the gateway drug. You know, um, a lot of parents and stuff they have it in their they have liquor cabinets. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for myself and my friends, um, we we snuck in. Um, I don't know if it was my first my first drink, but the first drink that I can remember, 
is going back also with Easton. So Easton, um, they have a really good wrestling program, have for decades and decades and decades. Um, so that's like the number one sport. There was a huge tournament one night, like Friday night, and uh, afterwards, me and my friends, we thought it was a good idea to go over to his parents' house for a sleepover. Uh, my girlfriend included was there. How old were you at this point? Uh, probably about 15. Okay. I'd say about 15, mm-hmm. about a sophomore or freshman. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so the only thing was his, his grandparents were home. They were away on vacation, and they lived in Alpha, which is a small borough outside of Peaburg in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. So after this wrestling tournament, you know, we call our parents, tell them whatever, we're sleeping over Joey's grandparents' house. We ride our bikes over there, um, and then we end up breaking in, damaging their sliding door, and, you know, raiding their liquor cabinet. Um, and what was your first – so this is your first taste of alcohol, right, at 15? I don't remember if that was my first taste of alcohol. I know it definitely wasn't my first taste. Um, but it's the first time you – what? Can recall. Yeah, yeah. Like, just the feeling that it gave me. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, we we I was it was my two friends, best friends Kyle and Joey, and then my girlfriend at the time, who I dated all through high school and part of college. Um, yeah, so it was a good time. So I always associated drinking with those things. Um, I always tell people that, in my opinion, um, addiction is, which I'll get into later, addiction isn't just the drink or the drug, man. It's it's who you are, yeah. actions, behaviors. Um, well, that's what's kind of interesting about the concept of a gateway drug, which I think we, when I was growing up, there was a lot of talk about gateway drugs. I think that's this kind of outdated concept now. Yeah. I mean, all, someone like you who has who, who is going to wind up with a propensity towards addiction, it doesn't make any difference how you're, you're going to get started one way or another. Correct. You're going to find it. Or it's going to find you. Correct. So you start drinking, and was was it, were you blackout drinking right away at fifteen? Or what? no, no, honestly, <laughs> I never was really of a blackout drinker. I was always the guy that bragged because I could out drink you. Um, you know, especially drinking younger in high school, they're seniors and stuff, and I'm out drinking. <laughs> you know that story is so typical. I mean, it's typical of, of of a lot of young people at fifteen who start out exactly that way, and not all of them wind up. Uh, in in uh, big trouble. How how? Uh, so where do you go from from you know drinking a lot? So um, I was really heavily involved in sports in high school. I played football. I played football, um, basketball. Ran indoor track and outdoor track. Always associated myself as a jock. Right. right. Um, you know. So drinking really came along uh, regularly. I didn't start drinking until. Probably my I remember my summer year going off to college after my senior year. Um, I that's where my drinking picked up. I was fortunate enough to be able to um, go to Shippensburg to play football. Mm-hmm. Um, so up until this point, everything was all I was always the person that they said, like, you know, has potential. I didn't put much work in, whether it came to grades, sports or anything. I always just did enough on raw talent mm-hmm. and um, skill. So that whole summer when other kids were working out, um, you know, and doing what they're supposed to do, I spent it, you know, trying to drink with my buddies because it's going to be the last time we're going to be together before going away, before we all go our separate ways. And that's where my drinking picked up. And then as I went to college, um, my drinking became heavier. Yeah, what's interesting is that you paint a picture that we're hearing more and more frequently of someone who who, who was, in, in effect, a popular kid in high school in with the right crowd you were with you're with the jocks um you you weren't a loner you you didn't have dark feelings of not fitting 
and yet this disease uh, this disease found you. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. We have with us uh, Yannick Harris. Uh, Yannick is a uh, staff member here at Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Uh, we'll find out more about what what he's doing in that context straight ahead. But now he's taking us through his history of uh, his struggles with substance abuse and then his eventual uh, treatment and uh, sobriety. Uh, so Yannick, uh, college really drops it into overdrive. I've heard that story a, a hundred <laughs> times. Um, you're handling it pretty well when you're in high school. You're still high achieving. You're still an athlete. You get to your first year of college and, and – uh, was what was it? A, you gravitated to a different kind of crowd, or what happened that first year? Uh, so I showed up, like I said, and, um, I got the privilege to play football there. So I remember showing up to to camp, um, summer camp, and I was the youngest one there. I was still technically seventeen at the time, um, and I just remember puking my brains out the first the first day. Um, you had to run sixteen one hundred and ten yard sprints. And and it was timed um, because because you weren't prepared, you weren't in shape. I was, yep. Yeah, okay. so I ended up puking my brains out, back locking up. It was awful. Um, and just throughout that year, you know, I continued to drink more and more, um, hang out. Um, I wasn't. I failed. It's, it's funny. I failed two classes just for attendance. I had passing grade. One of them was human communications. And I had like a 96 and failed because I, A, missed the first day of uh, the second semester where they hand out the syllabus. It says if you miss three or more, um, you would <laughs> you would you would receive a failing grade. Yeah. And another one was online, so, but you were still expected to attend. So I did all my assignments, but just never showed up to. I showed up to the first class. Yeah. So you didn't give yourself any chance at all. No. Of succeeding. How long did you last in college? Um, just one year. Um, after the first year, I didn't get enough credits. Um, and I don't know if anyone's ever been in that situation, but you can appeal it. Um, however, you know, I had scholarships and financial aid and other things that I lost oh, and did away. not appeal as well. Yeah. So then financially, I was not able to go to school. When this is going on and you're, and you're, you're not a dumb, a dumb guy, you know, you've messed up, uh, gigantically disappointing everybody in the family. Uh, you were aware of your mom's background. Uh, you certainly, certainly knew, you know, what your father w- was all about, even though he wasn't part of your life. At what point did you go? Hey, I'm, I'm, I got a problem here. Did, did that occur to you at any point? No, that didn't occur to me for a while. Man. Um, not at all. Uh, so, what do you think was going on? Did you? Think, I mean, I just thought I was a young kid, like it was normal. Because my to my, be that screwed up. Yeah, my surroundings. That's like you are what you hang with. You know. Um, when I left college, I had a girlfriend at the time. She was a heavy pot smoker. At this point in time, I was just drinking. Um, she was a heavy pot smoker, and I remember we'd ride around. Her friend was significantly older than us by like six, seven years. Um, we'd ride around, smoke weed, and you know she had a boyfriend um, at the time that lived in Easton. These two did not live in Easton; they lived mm-hmm. in Hellertown, mm-hmm. um, a small town, a little ways over. And I just remember we'd ride around smoking weed and and, and drinking. It just seemed like this is what you do. Yeah. You do. When did the uh, when did the substances start to uh, grow more serious besides marijuana and drinking? So I would say where substances came in with me, um, going kind of back to like you know I like I wasn't I was always around a bunch of people parties. That's what I associate drinking with. Um, I was always the type of person. I live off adrenaline. You tell me not to do something, I'm going to do it. And I, and I love it. I get like a rush from it, almost more than like a drug. Really? You know? Um, so 
there was a t- I remember I got a really bad toothache. My mom, she had some Percocets laying around. Um, I had no idea what they were at the time. She was like, here, you could take it for for your tooth. Now, at this time, I'm pretty much drinking every day mm-hmm. um, and riding around with this group of friends. 17, 18 years old now? Mm, I was about 18, 19, okay. about mm-hmm. 19. So um, we're riding around, and one of them seen it the one day. I was like, you know you can make money with those. So then I started selling Percocets, um, and then – that's really where drugs came into play for me. At that point in time, that's when I got into more of selling drugs. When that started, when you started to sell uh, drugs, did it occur to you you were your father's son? Did that bother you at all? Did you ever th- make that no, connection? No, and honestly, that did not come until probably I don't think I ever even had that thought until I was starting to get sober. Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's, it's a strange thing to inherit, right? Your, your dad's, correct. Your dad's profession, which had him in jail. So um, where, where do you ultimately wind up? You're, you're taking opioids now? Uh, no, actually, I, I never really took them. I ended up selling them. Mm-hmm. Um, then I ended up selling ecstasy, and then for a long time, um, I sold weed. Um, that, but you weren't a heavy user during this period of time. You were, you were dealing them. Correct. Yeah. But one thing about me is I always drank. Um, I will say that I'm an alcoholic to the core. Um, I always drank, always labeled myself as a function alcoholic because I'd be doing all these different things. And then on top of it, there was countless times where I was in a car, something got pulled over, reeking like alcohol, driving without a license and didn't get caught. So then, you know, in my mind, I think that um, I'm too smart, you know, to kind of elude myself, mm-hmm. the illusion that I have. Mm-hmm. Did you uh, ever get arrested for drug uh, for selling drugs? Um, yes, I did. Um, so I my first charge was um, right out of like less than a year out of um, college. It wasn't for selling drugs. It was for being one of those adrenaline things. Um, this kid that was hanging around us. Make a long story short, I ended up stealing like I think it was like fourteen car rims from three different locations. This kid had did it the night before somewhere else. When we took him to the place to turn it in, they were waiting for him. Really? Um, so that was I had a short stint in jail there. Um, then I picked up paraphernalia charge. But my biggest charges followed after that is um, I got arrested for possession with intent to deliver, um, and it was one ounce of marijuana. Welcome back to Recovery Radio. Steve Martirano is with you. A reminder, we're here on Saturdays at this time talking about the disease of addiction. We've, we've been doing the show now for uh, over five years now. When we got started, certainly people were aware of the problem of substance abuse and addiction in our society. But even back that relatively short period of time, the the size of the problem, the, the coming tsunami of uh, opioids w- w- was a, you know, not even a a distant thought in anybody's mind. So things have changed over five years, but not the mission of this program. We're sponsored by Retreat. They are um, a world-class treatment facility, but they're sponsoring this program not so much to toot their horn, but to let you know you know, what the stakes are with this disease, uh, the many ways to recovery, and the fact that millions of people uh, manage to live s- sober lives even though they are addicts, as it were. Uh, that's why we're here, and that's what uh, this program's about. So when I give you the phone number for retreat, I give it to you purely as an informational tool. If they can help you, if they think they are the place you should go, then certainly you, you know, you'll be in the best hands imaginable. But they'll answer any question you have. So I hope you never have to use this number, but it could be a very, very consequential if the disease of addiction ever descends upon you or your family. 855 859 
That's the phone number for Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Any question about anything you've heard here or any questions in your life or anything at all about this disease, they stand ready to answer them for you. 855-859-8808 Retreat Premier Addiction Treatment Centers. Uh, Yannick Harris is our guest in the in the studio this week telling about his struggles with substance abuse and how he managed to get now four years sober. Before we go further, Yannick, Yannick grew up an athlete. Uh, he comes out of, uh, you know, um, sort of inner city circumstances, um, but a very stable childhood with a stepfather as the, the guiding light and his mom who has her own problems. But he, you, were, you say you were an athlete, went to college on some scholarship money, and I said every time I wanted to – introduce you i wanted to call you yannick noah and you said yeah that's what you, that's why that's where you got the name right correct yeah and your brother's name is boris boris so there were tennis back. so there were tennis fans in the family right <laughs> so you you go to tennis your brother was good at tennis my brother was ex was great naturally yeah. Yeah. um i was okay with effort <laughs> it, it, you know it frightens a lot of people who who, who think that one of the, the great things about youth sports is that it channels uh, kids energy and attention and time in something productive uh, like like an, a sport and you were doing that but it didn't stop you from running uh, running wild right correct see so, so you know folks listening who um, are putting a lot of eggs in that basket that's good uh, that's great for kids to have that but it, it's not a guarantee of anything Yannick so y- y- now you're jammed up because you're selling drugs uh, did you start using opioids at some point Yes, I did. Um, it initially started with like ecstasy, um, cocaine, on and off, um, and I would always drink mixed mixed drinks with them. Um, I eventually, my last time in jail, um, I, at this point in time, I had two kids. The reason I had to go and go to jail was be, no, I had one one child and oh, my oldest son, Caleb, at the time. Um, the reason I went to jail was for a parole violation. I had known about it. It was inevitable. Um, so I did four months. Um, at that point in time, me and his mother were not together. Um, and when I got out, um, sometime between while I was in jail, she started writing me and we got back together. Um, one of the reasons that we were not together at the time is because she's had her own struggles um, with substance abuse. Um, and it was just a recipe for disaster. Um, shortly after she claimed she wasn't drinking, I think it was like the second night I was out. We're at friend's house, supposed to be a dinner with kids, and we ended up, and they ended up drinking. And before I knew it, you know, I, I sitting in jail, you get a lot of time to think. I had every intention not to drink, and you know, uh, bef- I didn't have a defense against it. I just started drinking, um, and then it was back off to it. Um, I one thing I stayed away from was selling drugs, um, but then. Things kind of hit the fan. Um, uh, my the mother, of my kids. She had like a blackout episode. Cops got involved. CYS got involved, and then that's when I kind of I came back to Easton. I was living in Bucks County at the time. Came back to Easton, and that's where my life was good. Um, my gr- moved in with my grandmother, my mom. At this point in time, my grandmother. Um, she was battling stage four lung cancer. She was like four years in at the time. They only gave her three months to live originally. So I got a job. Was take um, the kid. Uh, my son came with me. Um, the mother of my kid. She also has a daughter. She also came with me um, while she did what she had to do for CYS. So I was working, taking care of kids. My grandmother. I haven't picked up um, a Bible study 
because um, on my mom's side of family are all Jehovah's Witness. That's what I was brought up in. And life was good. Um, so my grandmother, she ends up dying. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was July of 2013. So everything happened pretty fast. Um, my grandmother died, found out that um, the mother of my kids was sleeping with my best friend, filled with all this hate and um, stuff. You know, I decided to start selling drugs. And that was the first thing because um, my friend at the time, he was selling heroin. Um, so I figured that that's how I would get back at him. Um, and then I slowly started using. At this point in time, I was I had done heroin before, probably like for two years, like really like on and off, like just if it was there. Um, and then slowly but surely, you know, I was at a 50, do- 50 bag a day habit. Um, and how long did that go on? So by the time I reached that, so from from August is like when I probably really started heavily to March um, is when I went from not doing it at all to doing like 50 bags a day. You know, I'm going to stop here now before we uh, before we go any further with your, your substance abuse history and your uh, eventual treatment. You know, the, the story you tell sounds like um, it, 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 it can sound like, well, these things happened to he, you. They were. They're almost inevitable. I mean, your father was a drug dealer. It's almost inevitable that you're going to be a drug dealer. Your mom has a substance abuse problem, and now you have a substance abuse problem. Um, You had every opportunity not to go down that path, correct? Correct. I mean, you had every opportunity. So so in your mind now, as you sit here now four years sober, do you look at it as inevitable that you took this path, or did you make a series of bad decisions that pushed you in that direction? (laughs) Uh, the reason I laugh is because there's you always see debates as whether you were born this way or if it's inherited. And I try to – I really don't have a, a definition. Like I don't have a permanent stance on that. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hear in that. Almost question. doesn't matter, right? You're in, yeah, that's what you're I hear in, in that question. I do believe from the actions and the type of person that I am, um, that's what makes me an addict. And in that sense, it was inevitable. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Um, there's a lot of truth to that. We don't know enough about that, but there is something to be said for – this was going to happen one way or another. Uh, how did you get the treatment your first time? So um, I was going back and forth to Easton. I was moved back to Bucks County, going back and forth to Easton every weekend um, to take my oldest son because I had partial custody of him from Friday to Monday. We would always go up to my mom's house. She really took the death of my grandmother hard, um, and my son always brightened her spirits. Over this period of time, you know, I'm like 50 pounds lighter. So she would always ask me, like, Yannick, is everything okay? Yannick, everything okay? And I would say, yeah. Um, and then one day she goes, Yannick, is everything okay? And I don't know what it was, but I said no. And we were driving up, and um, she's like, what Like, what are you doing? I told her. I said, I'm doing heroin. Um, then she asked me how I was using it. I told her, IV. And just to see the pain and the hurt that I caused my mom, um, you know, that's something I'll never forget. She broke down crying like it, it still hurts to this day. Um, and, you know, this is how sick the disease of addiction is. My mom's my best friend, and with the pain and hurt I caused her, she said, look, Yannick, I love you, but, um, you know, I'm going to have to love you f- from a distance. You know, thank God that after three days went by, um, she reached out to me and was like, hey, you need to get help. Um, in my sick mind at that point in time, when she told me that, I said, yes, this is what I was thinking. Um, I said, yes, you know, now I don't have to stop what I'm doing every weekend to come up here 
and um you know for her and that's just that's just the insidiousness the selfishness and self-centeredness which is the core of yeah. this disease yeah you, even when you're even when you're presented with the right options get help the disease is telling you You'll say yes here now for other reasons, not the right reasons. Correct. Yeah. Um, so, how many trips in and out of? Uh, did you were you in and out of rehab, or what, what was the situation? No. So I had to go to rehab on my terms. My mom's brother, he was in Florida for like over a decade, still lives down there now. He got sober down there. So I said, I will get clean if I can do it in Florida. I go there, went to a treatment center. And I left there after like two to two two nights, three days, something like that. Ran the streets in the middle of West Palm Beach, don't even know where I'm at, and still found drugs and, you know, ran the streets for a whole day. And then the next morning, after the money, drugs, and the people that I left the rehab with were gone, called my, my uncle. Um, he got mad at me, kicked me out of his car. At this point, I already had a flight booked back to Pennsylvania, but it wasn't for the next day. Went back to um, West Palm Beach because he lives in Lake Worth. Did the same thing by myself this time all over again and then caught a plane back into um, LVI Allentown. At this point, you know, I thought like, ah, I could say I gave the recovery thing a try. But, you know, I honestly believe that God stepped in here because my mom picked me up from the airport with my aunt and my oldest son. Um, we went to the Sonic to eat and the plans were for her to take me to my house where I was living at the time afterwards. So it's a hot day. It's July 3rd, and um, it's it's super hot out. They're taking forever. I dogged my food. I'm like, Mom, can I wait in the car while you guys finish up? She said, yeah. I end up passing out, and I wake up, and there's this very old gentleman there um, with the back door open. My mom's behind him with cigarettes yelling at me saying, I got to go with this man. Now I freak out, start walking, and it's along um, the highway there, so I just start walking. I don't even know where I'm walking. I'm mad. Now, at this point, my older cousin, who I mentioned earlier, um, he's there, and he comes running after me, and he said, you know what, what would Graham think if she, what would Graham feel if she saw you like this right now? And that really struck me, so I ended up going to um, a small place called Conawago Snyder in Beavertown, Pennsylvania. I ended up being there 103 days. Then I went to a partial program at Code Forge in Williamsburg, and then from there, I went to the gate the gatehouse which is in over in Lidditz and that's how I ended up in Lancaster County and then from there <laughs> I even went to um, the recovery house which was known as REI at the time and I was there for like a year and some change and the irony of that is because essentially I got to do every single step of rehab and I'm a patient care coordinator I retreat and that's what I do is set up patients after care right. well, you, know, <laughs> you must be good at your job Yannick Harris is our guest he's going to uh, take us through the final stages of this and, and then bring us up to date. He's now uh, four years and counting sober. Steve Martirano with you here on Saturday's um, National Recovery Month, the September. We've been focusing on voices in recovery, people who have been there, done that, and are now um, successfully enjoying sobriety. That's certainly the case with our guest, uh, Yannick Harris. Extraordinary story of uh, being born into a kind of drug culture, um, but um, avoiding it for a certain amount of time and then just descending into just uh, the horrors of uh, substance abuse. Now four years sober. Uh, Yannick, before we went to the break, you, you, you talked about, you had a relatively, um, as far as these things go, a brief encounter with treatment. I mean, we've talked to people who were 13, 14 times in and out of rehab. That was not the case for you. 
during this last episode, when you talk about the hundred and some days when you were in uh, that treatment facility, something changed, didn't it? What what happened? Because it seemed to work. I'll tell you what happened. A, my mom said I could not come home after treatment, but she didn't. She waited till uh, like sixty days in to tell me that. You really uh, think that was a key thing? I mean, pe- people listening go. Well, what do I do with my kid? Do I that's help them? Do I not help them? That's a, that's a part of it. Yeah. And then the other piece was, honestly, looking back, I did not fight. Um, I'm really good after jails, institutions. I'm really good at blending in. The rehab that I went to, it was group, cigarette break, group, lunch. It was really like that. So I'm good at just flying. If you give me something to do, I can follow rules. And one thing I didn't do is I didn't resist. And I honestly believe that, to be honest, that's one thing I was from the beginning. I mean, from the first time that if you ever go to a treatment center, the first thing they're going to do is do a psych social. Um, when I was younger, I had uh, I had sexual abuse, a long history of it that I never told anyone. And I got honest about that. I got honest about how much I was drinking, what I was doing, how much, you know. And I honestly believe that honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness is what it takes for an individual to even have a shot. Shot at being sober. It's interesting when you mentioned you didn't resist because some people think resistance looks one way. Stiff back, arrogant attitude, uh, I'm not doing this. There are other ways to resist, right? By, by, For instance, as you just said, not telling the truth. Um, not you know, it's sort of a passive kind of uh, resistance, right? When you say surrender, tell us what what that meant to you when you when you, when you gave in to the to treatment. So I still didn't buy in. <laughs> I didn't quite give in yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to CoForge, and then the Gatehouse is really where I gave in. Um, the Gatehouse. They had all these foreign concepts. Like they had rules. I had to get a sponsor within the first thirty days. I had to um, have a home group within the first thirty days. Um, those types of things, you know, really got me. And still, even there, I did enough to fly under the radar. And then it's a ninety-day program. I was set up to go to their um, their recovery house. And about two weeks before, I started to self-sabotage, quit my job, and that's one of the main things you need in order to go to the recovery house. Um, so they had an, an intervention. I was supposed to see my counselor at the time. He called the whole clinical staff, and they sat me down and started firing away. I mean, they said, what are you doing? Self-sabotaging, blah, blah. So I walked away from that, and they were like, listen, what you're going to do, because at this point in time, I had a sponsor by name. I wasn't calling him, though, but I was honest about that with my counselor. He was aware of that. Um, so they're like, you're going to call your sp- or get a sponsor, and you're going to look for a job, and then – that's really where my cut recovery started for me um, internally. That's when I started putting the work into actually – because for me, recovery – at this point in time, I was four months without a drink or a drug in my body. you know. But my behaviors the, and all the way I think was still the same. Mm. Um, all that was still the same. Yeah, so just not, not using alone is only part of the situation, right? For me, I can't speak for anyone, yeah. but for well, me. Well, no, we've heard the story over and over again. Yeah, you can Correct. stop using and still have problems that will ultimately or perhaps lead you back to using. Correct. So when you change the way you were thinking, uh, then your behavior changed as well. Yeah. Um, um, actually, it's kind of the other way around. You know, someone, someone once told me that you can act your way in the right thinking, but you can't think your way in the right acting. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, um, by following direction and just doing these things slowly over time, you know, I started to become this person right. that I aim to be. Right, right. So did you think any of your, your athletic background had anything to do with you needing that kind of regimentation and rules? And 
I don't know, to be honest. That's yeah. a good question. Yeah. Well, because uh, I remember, we, you know, you, you got to college, you, you weren't ready to play football. Had you been ready to play football, things may have been different. <laughs> yeah. So you so you get ready to get sober, and you're sober. And in you a put, way. And you put the work in. So, um, so four years now. So how did you wind up in the field? And tell me what you do here at Retreat. Um, so I had cooking jobs for a while when I was out here. I ran a restaurant. Um, I was the manager of a restaurant. And then just it was starting to become very demanding physically. Um, and I had a friend that worked at Retreat. He worked in the kitchen. He had just moved into the maintenance department. Um, so he's like, hey, look, there's hiring. I'll talk to the chef and, you know, get you a job there. So he put in a good word for me. I came up here to fill out the application. He's like, make sure you're there at this time, date. I was here. So as I was filling out the application in the main lobby, um, someone else that worked here that I knew really well, um, he was actually in outreach, which what I do now at the time. Um, he was like, oh, man, you don't want to work in the kitchen. He's like, how would you like being a CA? Um, and I said, he told me a little bit about it. And I said, yeah. I clinical assistant? Uh, clinical aid. Clinical aid. Yes. Um, so that's what I did. I ended up getting a job as a CA. Um, I was a CA for about four months, about five months. Then I became um, uh, administrative CA. Did that for about a year and a half. And then just recently in May, April, April, I started uh, became a patient care coordinator. Well, you, you, your reputation preceded you here. People tell me you're, you're a great employee here, and it's, it's coming along obviously nicely for you four years sober. Um, just, just quickly in the minute we have left, is it hard for you to stay sober? Is it hard for me to stay sober? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say – I wouldn't say it's hard. It's more hard for me – to not be the old me because I'm not perfect by, by any means. But it's like I actually care today. I can actually be a father today. I can actually be a son today. I can actually be a good employee today. And when I fall short, for me, it's most important that I make those things right and make those things right when I recognize that yeah. they're wrong. You'd rather, so you'd rather be this guy than the old guy? Any day. Any day. <laughs> Yannick Harris, thanks so much. Appreciate uh, your time. And again, congratulations on, uh, on the sobriety. Thank you. And thank you guys for your time. Please look for us on Saturdays, Recovery Radio. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Bye-bye. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.